Welcome to Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators with Jordan Donnell. This is a safe place to learn about women's health and sexual wellness. I'm your host, Jordan Donnell, physician assistant, women's sexual health educator, and intimacy coach. On today's episode, we are talking about purity culture. This interview is phenomenal. We are talking about what exactly purity culture is and the impact that that can have on sex and sexuality over a course of a lifetime. You do not want to miss listening to this episode. Did you know that less than one third of women understand their reproductive hormones and how they work? But that's not you anymore. Period Power is going to teach you all about your hormones, how to work with your body rather than fighting your body, and really how to partner with your body to optimize your work, sex, dating, intimacy, literally everything. Period Power is something that I have been working on behind the scenes for a long time, and it has helped me step into partnership with my body and learn how to optimize my hormones to have a more energized, productive, happier life. And I want that for you. Join me in Period Power starting May. To learn more, go to periodpower.jordandonnell.com. Joining me today is Anna. She is a physician associate as well and a PhD student of clinical sexology. She coaches clients with all manners of sexual concerns, many of which arise from the lack of sex education and being raised in a culture that not only values, but demands abstinence until marriage. She also sees clients with sexual dysfunction related to health problems and aging. She is passionate about improving the sexual lives of her patients and clients. All right, Anna, I'm super excited to have you here with me to talk more about purity culture. It's something that I think affects a lot of individuals and we are bringing more light to it, but would love to really know like what in the world is purity culture? Yeah, great. I'm super excited to to be able to to add to that to bring more light to it. So basically purity culture just takes place in systems whether religious or cultural that highly value abstinence and sexual purity until marriage. And I have to say like within these different constructs, there are many nuances. So I'm very familiar with my own background of purity culture. And they have a lot of similarities. But certainly, I'm not going to be talking to every different flavor of purity culture today. I love that distinction. Because when I think purity culture, I instantly think uh, like Bible Belt Christianity. However, there are so many other religions and other things out there that have similar but different beliefs on what exactly purity culture is. So I love that you specified that you're talking to your own experience. Before we really jump into like purity culture, I would love, are you open to sharing a little bit about your experience growing up in purity culture? Ooh, yeah, sure. 
I was raised LDS in Utah. So LDS, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons or LDS for abbreviation. And in the LDS culture, abstinence till marriage is a mandate, I would say. And so in my experience, my parents spoke very little to me about sex and anything that was really talked about was addressed more from like a shameful or dirty reference. And so I listened to a podcast that you did with Rachel Maine, and you guys were talking about your experience growing up and exploring your own bodies and things like that. That was definitely not my experience at all. So I, being raised in the culture, I was also a virgin until I got married. I've had exactly one sexual partner in my life. So that is unusual these days. Sex was definitely something that people were, that we were curious about, but we didn't dare ask about. I remember bringing up a friend at school told us that her sister lost her virginity. And I don't think I really knew what that meant, but I repeated it to my sister and my dad heard. And it was just immediate, don't you ever talk like that? So that very much, it was not, it was a taboo topic until you get married and all of a sudden, then you get the green light to go for it. And that can be really intimidating. Yeah, I I can only imagine, like for me, total opposite. However, there were a lot of things, a lot of language that I wasn't familiar with or didn't maybe understand the concepts, but sex was talked about in my household. Having waited until marriage, do you feel like you were adequately prepared for sex and knew what you needed to know to have sex? I was really fortunate. I was 24 when I got married, which might sound young, but in LDS culture, it's kind of old. And so I had like some lived experience by then in terms of I was working as a surgical tech at our university hospital. And so I was rubbing shoulders with people from all different backgrounds on a daily basis. And just between the residents and the surgeons that I worked with and the nurses, I felt like I had a very good grasp of sex, at least my attitudes surrounding sex. I also think I kind of just had some innate innate thing within me that knew that making that transition was going to be fine. But I was lucky because there are many people who don't have the same type of experiences that I had who maybe go on to go to the church university and they're surrounded by other people with their same level of understanding and then go into the marriage really blind. And so, yeah, I was really fortunate that way. Do you feel that the health education that you received about sex, STIs, menstrual cycles, all of that stuff was ever covered at, at all for you or adequately? menstrual cycles, we had like a fifth grade, I believe it was fifth grade, we had a maturation program where we learned about menstrual periods. Of course, I think just like most girls, it's like when you're learning it didactically, you're like, yeah, sure, okay. And then you have the lived experience of it. And it's totally different. So that was that I felt like, yeah, menstrual cycle wise, that was not that was not something that was withheld in terms of the education. Sex education, I don't recall having any sort of formal sex education until I was a junior in high school, I believe. And 
I really have very little recollection from that. It was in our health class in high school. I remember her telling us that penises were bigger than tampons. (laughs) And that was essentially it for my sex education. No, no understanding. I mean, it was because everything was abstinence based. There was no information about STIs other than to scare images that were designed to scare us or make us afraid. I never had any hands-on experience with condoms or birth control of any kind and would probably have had no idea how to use those from my education. Wow. So that kind of brings me to what you do now. You're an intimacy coach, primarily working with individuals who are also from a background of purity culture and abstinence-based education. And I would love to talk more about what types of sexual concerns and health concerns come from purity culture. Absolutely. I think that's such a great question. Let me kind of step backwards just for a second to give a little bit more clarity to what this purity culture narrative looked like, because I think it will play into how those consequences kind of come about. So for in the LDS culture, that particular brand of purity culture, genders are actually quite equally weighted. In some purity cultures, there's kind of a gender bias in terms of it might be okay for the men to have some sexual experience, but not for the women. But in my cultural experience, both boys and girls, men and women are held to the same standard. So that is unique. And for girls, we were basically taught that girls were holy or spiritual and thus not sexual. And because of that, we made good gatekeepers for the boys that we dated And so then the boys being raised, they were validated as being sexual beings, but that sexuality had to be reined in and strictly controlled until marriage. So the youth in my culture grow up having frequent interviews with their local clergy to make sure that they're being obedient and keeping themselves pure. And so I know like my brothers growing up were asked questions about masturbation and pornography. And if they were fine to have any infractions in those areas, then there is actually a disciplinary process and encouragement for them to change those behaviors and to rein themselves back in and save themselves till marriage. And then there was this narrative that was more cultural than doctrinal, if that makes sense. They were promised that they would have a beautiful wife if they were obedient to these sexual mandates. And so us as the girls were seen as the reward that we were taught that we would give our virginity to them on our wedding night as a gift. And thus our sexual purity was paramount. So many girls grew up hearing lessons in which girls with sexual experience were compared to like chewed gum and, and seen as less desirable, right? Let alone somebody who had experiences with pregnancy or STIs. And that was just a whole other level of feeling like they were less than. 
So that kind of gives you an idea as to the narrative that was given to us. And then it's like right before you get married, that narrative shifts to sex is great and you should give your husband, you should be sexual with your husband and, and shifting that mindset for some people is really, really challenging. It's like Emily Nagoski talks about the breaks. Like we have breaks full on stop and now all of a sudden green light go. And that can just be really challenging to navigate. Yeah. And I can only imagine how like you're told this story that you believe. And now all of a sudden you're supposed to believe something different, which goes absolutely against everything you've been told which can lead to a lot of like confusion. And also I think that that leads to a lot of sexual concerns as well that you're kind of going to dive into, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So in my background, because we have this in common that I'm a physician assistant and worked in women's health. And I was working, my first job actually was in a small town in Washington state that had a high teen pregnancy rate. So I went from that to my husband took a job that brought us back to Salt Lake City. And I was working in an area where all of a sudden I'm seeing girls who are getting married, who have no sexual experience. And I was teaching sex ed on like a daily basis because these girls would find themselves engaged. Engagements are very short in LDS culture because that sexual tension is very high. (laughs) And because you cannot do anything sexual prior to the wedding night, these engagements tend to be really brief. And when you've grown up with sex being a taboo topic, communicate, you have no communication skills surrounding sex. So oftentimes what I would find is girls would come in, they were coming in usually to start birth control and they would really just have no idea what they were in for. But often I would be told, it's fine. I'm sure my fiance will know everything and I'll just let him lead the way and it will be fine. And that would be Yeah, we great. both know that doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. That would be great, except for he's likely to be just as experienced as you are. And of course, when you have a purity culture like this, you also have a subculture of people hiding things, right? So pornography and masturbation were things that were often hidden because of the level of guilt and shame that they brought. So oftentimes, if the husband or the fiance did have any sexual experience, it was with pornography. And they have no foundation to understand that pornography is fantastical. It's a fantasy. These people do it for a living. They're performers. And it doesn't represent 99% of what normal people experience. But if you don't know that, and you think that this is what's normal, oftentimes girls would end up in these relationships. And they were like, my husband was asking me to do these things that I was like, where is this coming from? But they wouldn't have because it's a taboo topic. Who do you turn to? Who do you talk to? So that was issue number one is just going into it completely blindly without any foundation, no understanding of your own pleasure because masturbation is not permitted. So most of these girls didn't know their own bodies and just hoped that their partner would know. That is just leaving so much up to 
the male partner to know. And I think we see this with adolescents, not necessarily in purity culture, but a lot of teens see porn and think that that is what sex is. And like you said, porn is a wonderful tool to explore and help you learn about other types of sex or discover new ways to do things. But it is not necessarily like what sex actually is. A lot of porn is going to be, I forget the proper term for it, but but where it's pretty aggressive and it's rough. And that's sex isn't always like that. Some people really like that. Of course, that's their thing, but that's not the case for most people. And then I feel like this just leaves this position where women are in a spot where they don't know what they like because they haven't had any other experiences. And then men aren't in a place to know what other options are available or, or how to even have sex, which just leads for a less than ideal experience, in my opinion. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yes. When I first started coaching, one of the first things that I wanted to do, and unfortunately, it hasn't really taken off as well as I would have liked, I wanted to teach a honeymoon course for couples who were getting married. I just thought this was such a fantastic idea. I think the problem is, is we don't know what we don't know. So we think we'll figure it out. We'll we'll show up on the wedding night and we'll figure it out. And unfortunately, that just isn't the case most of the time. When a girl would come in to see me for these, we called them premarital exams, although I know that (laughs) they're not using that term anymore. But I would talk to these girls about lubrication or also even intercourse not necessarily being the goal of the wedding night. Of course, in your mind, when you've grown up in this type of culture, sex is intercourse. That is what it is. So the wedding night, there is that expectation for intercourse. And for all of us who can think back to that first sexual experience, depending on how it happened for you, if you had a partner who was really conscientious and took the time and foreplay to help your body get ready to facilitate intercourse, you might have had a reasonably good first experience. But in situations where you show up at a hotel room, you don't have any lube, you go straight from like wedding dress to trying to have intercourse, it just doesn't work very well. So as you can imagine, one of the most common problems that I see resulting from purity culture is painful intercourse or dyspareunia or vaginismus. All of these are kind of under the same umbrella. What happens is the vagina has never been penetrated by anything the size of a penis before. And it causes some pain and discomfort that first time. And our body is really good at remembering things. So the next time that a penis comes at you, you automatically tense those muscles and the tone in the pelvic floor can spasm and it can cause pain. And this continues to happen over and over if it's not addressed. And all of a sudden, I can't have sex. It's too painful. And so that is, uh, for women, probably the number one issue that I would see. And I would say that you can sometimes see those same conditions with 
people who are raised in purity culture in more of that mindset side and that you've been told this story this whole time. And in your brain, your brain is saying, this is bad. This is bad. And so every time you go to have sex, your brain automatically triggers, this is bad, which can lead to all of those conditions, the pain, painful in course, vaginismus, all of that. So hmm, what do you do when you have a patient or a client who has experienced that from purity culture and that's rooted in purity culture? First of all, I think it's just from a psychological standpoint, it's always good to ask people what story is being told. I I love this about, I'm in a PhD program. Most of my cohort are sex, becoming sex therapists, or they are sex therapists now getting a PhD. And there are different types of therapies such as EFT that focus on this type of story. What is the story that's being told? So you're right. You just named it. This is dirty. This is bad. This is, I shouldn't want this. So I think sometimes once people are able to name that and to see, because they may not even be conscious of what story they are telling themselves. So there's that. The second part is physical. We have to retrain the brain-body connection. So oftentimes that looks like something called sensate focus, which is a type of kind of acquainting your body with its own sensations in learning how to modify. So I would say relaxation is a huge part of what I do for girls who are experiencing vaginismus, teaching them how to breathe, teaching them how to relax, teaching them to back way up from going straight to intercourse and learning to accept different types of touch and different types of pleasure. So in this culture, what's really interesting is vaginal dilators are something that I was asked about on almost a daily basis. It's almost like enough people have had this experience that roommates learn it from their roommates. They'd come in for these premarital exams and they would say, can I have a dilator? And I was like, again, I'm coming from the background of just having spent three years taking care of pregnant teenagers and nobody ever asked me about a dilator there. So what what are these dilators? Why are they so interested? But dilators actually do play a key role in, in helping to learn relax those vaginal muscles. They have, we have graded vaginal dilators that start from like pinky size all the way up to they can even go a little bit larger than an average penis. And being able to introduce a, a dilator into the vagina while you're in control and able to breathe and relax and pay attention to those muscles and then gradually introduce the larger sizes and and then reintroducing the, the penis, reintroducing intercourse. It just requires a lot of communication and a lot of trust while using these relaxation techniques that they've been taught. I feel like 90% of my episodes that I record it all comes down to communication and that 
none of us are taught how to communicate in the bedroom effectively. And that's something that as adults, you know, we're going back and we're learning this now that, oh, I should communicate what I didn't just like, I didn't even know I should. I didn't even know that there, I could want something. And it's just so interesting that you see that in every single area that communication is so important. How do you help your couples communicate? Great question. I think that it's, again, important to kind of take a step back. So I actually will tell couples to not focus on intercourse for a while, like just completely take it off the table to step back and to do some sensory focus exercises themselves using all five senses. We have sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch, and all of those things can bring pleasure to us. So take some time to experiment and find out what is pleasurable. So starting with that exercise, then it's a matter of teaching how to have difficult conversations, which I wish just as a standard educational element started in kindergarten because all of us struggle with this, right? It's especially in a culture, LDS culture is also very patriarchal. So a lot of times girls are taught to be more quiet and to not really speak up. And so you really have to teach these girls that it is okay. It's okay to say what they want. It's okay to say what's working and what's not working in a way that is not bringing judgment. One other aspect I would see that happens when somebody's experiencing vaginismus is you have, you kind of develop a decreased desire, right? So then you end up in a, dis, a discrepancy, a desire discrepancy where he's still wanting intercourse and she's not wanting intercourse. And then he loves and respects her. So he doesn't, necessarily really want to ask for it. So he kind of starts withholding himself. And so then you see like male sexual dysfunction, you can see erectile dysfunction, delayed ejaculation or premature ejaculation. So helping them visualize and see this, this desire discrepancy and just like putting names to things I think is really important but then just giving them some basic communication skills to be able to say in a way that takes blame off of either side, because it's really easy to start pointing fingers. Well, she does this. Well, he always does that. And that doesn't help anybody to be able to say, when this happens, I feel this way. And then for him to be able to for them as partners, I guess, so up to not separate this out into each one, but for each one to be able to ask the other, well, how does that make you feel? How are you feeling when this happens? Or what does this mean for you? Or to be able to ask questions like, what would you prefer for me to do? And for to really encourage honest answers to those questions. And unfortunately, sometimes in the beginning, the questions are answered with, I, I don't know. Right. So that's why that sensory exercise is so important because then you can start saying, Oh gosh, well, I really loved it when you rubbed my feet. Like that felt so good. Or I really love having a hot shower and starting to just bring some of these, you know, back together to where I can now say what it is that I want and that I feel good about. 
And you can start, I always say, start simple. Don't go straight to when you penetrate me, da, 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 right? Start with little things like when we have our, our sexual encounter, I would love it if you would kiss my neck, or I would love it if you would do more of this, or you really do this well. I would love it if you did some more of that. And start the communication that way and then build up to some of these bigger issues. I love that recommendation to to start small and build because it builds confidence in having that conversation. And they're, they're hard conversations. It's awkward for everybody involved. And the more that you do it, the more practice that you get, the more comfortable it is, the easier it gets too. And that's what I always tell my clients is like, it's hard initially, but the more you do it, the easier it'll get, the more practice that you have. You know, I, I think of dating as an individual who's dating. It's the same idea in that the more I date, the more practice I have, the easier it is to identify like what I want or don't want. And it's all practice. And sex and intimacy is all practice as well. And it's just trying new things to see what you do or do not like and then communicating what you do and do not like. And I think you've nailed it, right? I think when women talk to me about these, or actually couples, when couples talk to me about sex, I always tell them that sex for those first few years of marriage should just be continually getting better and better. The better that they get at communicating, the better the sex becomes. So if you're always expecting your sexual experiences to be like your wedding night, that's, that should be the starting point. It should be like way back there on your list of good experiences, right? Sex at two years should be better than that. And sex at five years should be better than that. If you're really communicating with each other and things change, we have babies, we have periods, we menstrual cycles, we have all sorts of things, life that just happens. And so being able to communicate and teaching those skills early, make it so any challenge that comes up in their sexual relationship, they can address. And the other thing I think is really important is not waiting too long to address these issues. Because we know about neuroplasticity in the brain. And when we do something the same way over and over again, whether that's poorly communicating or any type of dysfunction, it can create this really rigid channel in our brain. And the sooner we can break out of those neural pathways and start creating new ones, the less likely we will be to have dysfunction in our sexual relationship later on in life. I so needed to hear that because it applies to all areas of life. Like, yes, we are talking about sex, but it does apply to all areas of life as well. And you got to make changes. That comment hits home for me. So. How do you ensure or like how do we as coaches and people out here spreading the word ensure that individuals in some form of purity culture have correct information and have the tools to set them up for a sexually fulfilling sex life? I have been thinking a lot about this because I don't know that there is one easy answer just time in general, right? What was acceptable in the 1800s versus the 1950s versus now, I feel like we are so much more open. 
to having these types of conversations compared to even just our parents' generation, right? So I think that just the more it's talked about, the more people have social media presences, the internet, there's so much more access to information. So times are changing. I think that's number one, and that's super important. Number two is that I do think there is a lot of mistrust for outside people, whether that's government or school-based sex education. I know in in the LDS community, a lot of people don't allow their children to participate in sex ed at school because they're worried about their values being represented. And so that's fine. If you don't want your kids to have sex ed at school, you just have to decide where they're going to get that education. Are you going to give it to them? Where are you going to get that information? So what I see happening now is that you see people rising up from within the culture, whether it's psychologists who are going on to get degrees as sex therapists and podcasting about that and having accessibility to courses and programs. And I know at least within the LDS community, that's been something that has been very valuable is having some of the early sex therapists that kind of led the way and people feel like they can trust them because they share their same value system. So I think that's really important. I also recently learned of a woman named uh, Lolo Cynthia. She is from Nigeria and she became a sex educator and is educating the culture and community that she came from. So it takes people like that being willing to educate their own culture, their own community. Now that being said, are you still a part of the LDS community? Are you ever not part of the community? I don't practice, but it's still so much a part of my life. So I feel like in some sense, these are still my people, right? Where my views and, you know, my religious views have changed. I still, I spent 40 years in, in that construct. So I'm very much like my whole social network is part of the community. To your point, it is a little tricky because people will say, oh, well, she's not in it anymore. I don't know if I can trust her, if that makes sense. Exactly. That's exactly what I was kind of getting at is that if you were in the community, it might be more easily acceptable for you to provide that information where if you're not so intertwined with it, it could make it maybe more difficult to get that same message across to other individuals in the community. Now, there was something that I out of curiosity, wanted to ask, and I think that a lot of listeners would also be curious about this. In LDS, does like oral sex and other forms of non-penetrative sex, quote, air quote, count as sex? The general answer is yes. However, I think there is still a lot of justification around that. You see that in The church I had mentioned has a university and we hear stories often about different ways that people kind of get around these rules, you know, but yes, technically they still count. What's interesting is actually in the 1970s, for some reason, 
it was decided that oral sex was not allowed. And as part of these, what they call worthiness interviews that people would have in the LDS culture, they have church buildings that you attend on Sunday, just like you would your local community church. They also have temples and temples are like an area where you have higher, higher worship and you have to have what's called a recommend to get into these temples. And in order to get a recommend, you have to meet with your local clergy and they will ask you a series of interview questions that deem you worthy or unworthy to go to the temple. So in the 1970s, oral sex was actually added to the temple recommend questions and it was being discouraged and told that it was a sin. So actually the only advice I got from my mom when I got married was that she told me that oral sex was wrong. That has changed. That didn't last very long. But unfortunately, in, in cultures like this, things kind of linger, right? There's There was never like a formal announcement that said, hey, never mind, we'll back off that. So there still kind of is some lingering taboo about that. Now they don't, they're not supposed to ask any specific questions about what people do in the bedroom. And basically, if It's the rules of consent, right? If both people are willingly participating, happy to be there, free to leave at any time, that's that's the rule. Thank you for clarifying that because I think that there's so much confusion about what sex is everywhere. And for so long, I think in, at least like to me, sex was defined as penetrative sex until I discovered that sex is not just penetrative. There are so many other forms of sex, but really would say that I probably didn't discover that until I was closer to late 20s. So within the last handful of years. And so, yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Is there anything that you would love for the listeners to really take away from today's episode? I just the sexual relationships are such a beautiful part of our lives. And a lot of these puritanical cultures are religious. And if you believe in God and that you believe he created the human form, then you have to believe that sexual pleasure was a part of his design. Because we know as women, we have the clitoris that has only one function and that function is pleasure. It has no other physiological function. And unfortunately, I feel like systems like purity culture that are designed to protect these relationships have used narratives that actually ended up damaging the way that people show up in these relationships. And so I feel like changing that narrative starts with people like me and you, people who have a voice who can share these stories and and get them out there so that people know and feel less alone. I love that you brought this up that the intent behind purity culture was not to harm relationships and to create stigma and shame and guilt and all of these things. It was to really highlight the positive of a sexual relationship. And it's been kind of taken out of, I guess, taken out of context and changed a little bit. And the narrative is really the the issue. So I love that you brought that up. Thank you so much for joining me, Anna. This has been a wonderful interview, great information. I'm so glad you were able to join me. Where can the listeners find you at? 
I'm on Instagram and Facebook, both as Entwine Coaching. You will quickly realize that social media is not my area of expertise, (laughs) but I'm working on it. So there's that. Also, I have an email that people can reach out to me if they don't have access to direct messaging. It's just Anna at EntwineCoaching.com. Always happy to answer any questions there. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I have really quick before we end two special things that are coming up that if people are interested, I offer a summer coaching package. So that will be the special on that will be released in May. So they can keep their eyes out for that. But also, and more importantly to me right now is I am just getting ready to start my dissertation year for my PhD. And I'm actually looking for women who were raised in purity culture who would be willing to be interviewed as part of my dissertation project. So if any listeners that are hearing this are interested in participating, please DM me or send me an email. I would love to have you participate. Yes. Thank you for sharing your ask. I will definitely post that on social media. I know that I have a handful of followers who will gladly participate in that survey. So, or or to chat with you more about it. So awesome. Thank you for sharing all of that. Hopefully I'm not too chatty. That's always like my worst fear. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Intimacy Coaching by Jordan Donnell. Have you ever desired more from your sex life or feel like you're having good sex, but curious about how to make it even better? Are you desiring a deeper intimate connection with yourself? Or maybe you are dealing with desire and arousal concerns, or struggling with communicating your desires with your partner. If you're hearing this and thinking, hmm, that might be me, and you're curious to learn a bit more, let's chat. I would love to talk with you more to see if working with me is a good fit for you. To learn more about intimacy coaching with Jordan Donnell, go to coaching.jordandonnell.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for joining today and continuing to bring awareness to women's health. If you love the show, please subscribe so you never miss another episode and leave a review for others to see. If you want to see me on the daily, you can check out my bio for links to all my pages. Be sure to share this episode with your girlfriends. Thanks again and see you next episode.